This is uh, another Chainbridge recording uh, podcast with Gaddy Tao. I'm David Martin-Jones, Research Director at the Danube Institute, and Gaddy Tao is uh, lecture or senior lecturer at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And we're talking today about events in Gaza uh, getting Gaddy's latest take on what's happened, and particularly talking about the odd Western response to um, Hamas and um, the idea of that uh, for some reason uh, Israel is responsible for everything that occurs on the Gaza Strip. So. I wondered what your thinking was at the moment um, about the nature of the Israeli operation in the Gaza Strip and how it's going, and also the uh, response both in Europe and the United States. Yeah. Um, so we've had a pause for a exchanging of hostages for terrorists. Uh, I was opposed to the deal, but seems it seems like Israel has maneuvered itself into into this situation by making previous deals in which in one of them we returned 1,000 terrorists, more or less, for one soldier, uh, thus encouraging our enemies to use kidnapping as, as a tool. So I was against this deal, and it paused the war, and people were worried that we will not resume it but um, but but we did um, last Friday. Uh, the war resumed, and it seemed with gusto. But but then came the American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and and the first weird thing, David, is that he sits on a cabinet meeting, um, and 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 we accept this as, as if you know we are not a sovereign state, and this is not an allied country, but. Uh, but as if we are a vassal state and and we we take dictates from from an american administration and this administration i'm very wary of because it continues its appeasement of iran and and although it it's israelis are not good at reading american uh, diplomacy because they listen to the music rather than the lyrics and the music is sentimental, and we're on your side, and you have a right to protect yourself, and the Jewish people have suffered so much and all that. But what they're actually doing um, is continuing their their policy of appeasement towards Iran. So since October 7th, many billions of dollars have been freed uh, around, under, above the sanction regime, which has been relaxed, if not abolished. And, and what the United States has been doing, and it's been very hard to say this here because people were so emotionally um, in need of some consolation after the hor horrific events that, that Israelis like to think that America has our backs. And indeed, it's easy to portray it that way because uh, not only did Joe Biden give us hyperbolic, friendly um, uh, rhetoric peppered with, with quotes from the Bible, um, but he also sent an aircraft carrier, which is a very, very, uh, uh, very strong statement. But, 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 as I, but as I tried to say to a public that didn't want to listen, this is not just to deter Hezbollah from entering the war in Lebanon. 
it is also to prevent us from preempting Hezbollah because this administration wants to continue its policy of appeasement towards Iran, and it doesn't want the war to spread to Lebanon because when if if we started a war with with Hezbollah, then then the American administration might be dragged into this war. And if not that, at least, then the American public would see that its appeasement policy has collapsed because Hamas is a proxy of Iran, but Hezbollah is a Shiite, huge organization directly affiliated. So what Biden came to do here is save his appeasement policy, not just save Israel. And now Biden, uh, Blinken is sitting in the cabinet and, and he's saying, A, do not move any more populations. B, attack more precisely. C, do not attack UN facilities. Mind you that they're hiding behind UNRWA schools, which are UN facilities. So that's what they're doing. And don't hurt civilians, which you can, if they hide, if they use civilians as human shield, that, that means stop the war. And then, they, and then our minister, minister of defense, Yoav Gallant, says, um, this war, Israel is united behind the need to destroy Hamas even if it takes months, and Blinken says, you don't have credit for months, you have weeks. So basically, the United States is telling us you can't win the war. I see, yeah. And um, so, I mean, what you're saying is, uh, the, uh, at all costs, um, the Biden administration wants to um, appease Iran and are setting... Um, actually impossible um, standards by which the Israeli defense forces can carry out operations in Gaza as well. So um, what is the mood in Israel to, to carry on with, with the, um, the Gaza operation? Is it still pretty rock solid? It's it, the public is rock solid, but not the security security establishment. Much of which has been as ties to the American Democratic Party through think tanks, through scholarships, through jobs, through training, through uh, sociological. And this is their milieu, um, and there's and then among the politicians, there's also a peace camp. So. So you have a combination of an American administration meddling in Israeli politics, leftist politicians who are willing to leverage that in combination with the army, which has just gone through a semi-coup. And there was, I don't know if people remember this, it now seems like ancient history, there was a controversy over judicial reform and the army basically said it would not obey the government. So, so could could you refresh us with this because that seems to be quite um, important in in the conduct of the operation and in fact some of the failings leading up to October the seventh, perhaps. Absolutely, um, I'm I'm glad you see this from from the distance of Hungary because in even in Israel it's hard to make people concentrate on that and see the continuity we had in Israel. The, the background of this is that in Israel democracy has been eroded by a juristocracy, a rule of judges, which has invaded all spheres of our politics. By the way, many are now blaming the court, which focuses on human rights, for tying our hands in the war against terrorists, because 
the, for instance, there was once a parameter around the Gaza fence, and 20 years ago or so, there was a very tough commander of the Southern Theater, a man named Doron Almog, General Doron Almog, who said, for the parameter is about one kilometer, and if you enter it, we shoot to kill. And so people didn't approach the fence. But then the combination of human rights organization and courts started eroding that. Well, don't shoot to kill, shoot to scare. And then gradually they accustomed us to getting near the fence. And, and the, this combination of, of, uh, of pro-Palestinian so-called human rights organizations and courts um, has, has, has tied our hands. And Hamas understands this. They, they understand Israeli society very well. And for a long time, they took advantage and, and approached and approached the fence. But this, so this is just one remark on the context of the the juristocracy. But then came the Likud government and, and wanted to put a stop to the, the the situation in which the court can intervene in any decision of the two other branches, any decision whatsoever. David, I'm not exaggerating. And the court also has veto on its own opponent. So we had an uber progressive government above the elected government. And then the Likud moved to reform the system. And the and, and we had, an I'd say, an uprising of elites uh, saying that this is to protect democracy. What they really protected is their privileged status through the, the, the left has been, the progressives have been ruling through the court and we're going to lose that role. And of course, these, the, the, Inside the army, you also have a a layer of this this elite, and they started saying that they will refuse to serve in 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 reserve, and that was what stopped the reform in the end. The fact that they created a feeling as, as if the army was collapsing, and and imagine now we're in a in a, in a war in a terrible war, and they and and the same forces now blame Bibi so that we forget that what really contributed, I'm not saying it's the decisive factor, but it certainly contributed to tempting Hamas to try this, is this, this hugely noisy movement that said to Bibi, you will not have an army because if you move ahead with this reform, we will not serve. And these are elites, elite units and pilots and cyber, the intelligentsia inside the army. Yeah. So is that part of the what seems to have been a significant intelligence failure before October the 7th? Yes, but it's not the whole story. What is important is that the the army gradually began to act as if it was an autonomy, and there were serious warnings on the eve of the attack, and the heads of services had phone calls among themselves four o'clock in the morning, and did not inform the Minister of Defense nor the Prime Minister. So this the partly the coup has reached such a such a degree that the army just uh, lost confidence or or, or deliberately uh, undermined the the elected government. And this is something we will need to look into after the war. But but certainly there there was a connection between between the, the the struggle of elites against democratization and 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 the fact that our that our enemies thought that Israeli society was collapsing they deliberately wanted to create 
a sense of collapse so that they, so that puts pressure on the government to stop the reform but what it did is is also tempt our enemies okay so what is the status now of the Netanyahu government in term, in Israel is there still this feeling that there was a failure by the government or that it was a failure of the elites it, it, there's a feeling that well it depends the, the the elites are using all their money all their influence the press is with them to say Netanyahu 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 but but clearly the, the, there's a failure here that includes everyone and 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 it goes beyond elites um there there was there there was a failure i think of the deep conception and the deep conception is something that we have been uh, slipping into for decades and i'd call it the defensive philosophy of uh, foreign relations and we have stopped uh, going after our enemies and instead we're building sophisticated electronic walls surveillance systems automated uh, systems and and uh, relying heavily on what they call here a a, a smart technological army and, but 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 the fact is that we are developing iron domes and slurry walls and and devices that are basically defensive and 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 this in in our region and i think in general you cannot win wars through defensive strategies alone and our enemies well understood this and developed what military expert experts called escalation dominance we only react we don't initiate and and this is a conception that i would say goes beyond elites beyond the netanyahu government the, this is a matter of three decades more or less that we that di- this conception failed that's very good but i i mean the the, the related to that is I, I mean I suppose from a um a more active uh perspective um what Israel was trying to do and with sort of some degree of American assistance was was to develop a relationship with um Saudi Arabia the United Arab Emirates and and the the group around the so-called Abraham Accords to establish you know a sort of a uh, a block in the middle east that would counter iran and what october the 7th has done is as has been to sort of completely shatter that uh, possibility do you think first of all the the structure has was was shaken by the uh, the rise of the 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 the, the electoral victory of the biden administration in November 2020, because the whole structure was predicated on a United States that supports its allies. The United States uh, was problematic from 2020 when uh, Biden, on one one hand, was supporting the Abraham Accords. On the other, he was following Obama's policy of appeasing Iran. Take it. The minute the 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 american cornerstone was pulled from under the abraham accord structure um it, it all wobbled and since israel can't 
uh, fight a sustained war against Iran on its own and can't do it only with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Then, then, the, the, then the coalition began to fray and, and countries like Saudi Arabia began to feel for other options. They reestablished uh, relations with Iran. They, uh, they sent feelers to the Russians and the Chinese. They, they searched for alternatives. But still, Netanyahu kept on the road of trying to cement this Sunni-Israeli uh, uh, alliance. Um, uh, and, and, and that, I think, made Hamas... Uh, uh, feel the urgency of the situation. Because for Hamas on the ground, as opposed to Hamas leadership in Qatar and outside, there's Hamas, there's in Gaza and out of Gaza Hamas, but they felt rightly that if Netanyahu's strategy succeeds, then this bypasses the Palestinian issue and, 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 uh, and severs the alliances that the Palestinians thought they had in Arab countries. And so I think that they jumped the gun while Iran and Hezbollah would probably have waited a little with, with an attack. And, and, and if you think of it, they, they threw a fiery bowling ball at the pins of the Abraham Accord structure by replacing the Palestinian issue as the most urgent one and forcing the Arabs, because, you know, this is a this is something Arabs um, uh, can't can't uh, uh, overtly turn their backs on. So, the, so it forced Saudi Arabia into, I think, an uncomfortable. Well, I, I think that's really interesting. Your um, reading of this. So, so you you think it was uh, um, an un you know predicted move by Hamas in Palestine, not with the the sort of imprimatur, not with the agreement of the Iranians or the uh, or Hezbollah in in Lebanon. Yes, because I think that you know I thought in the beginning that since uh, the uh, Islamic Jihad in in Gaza took part in it, they are part of the El Quds force controlled by Iran. I thought this must be an Iranian plan, but then then it seems that the jihadis uh, just jumped on a wagon that was already set in motion. And the fact that this was not well prepared on the Hezbollah side um, it gave me pause in assuming that Iran masterminded this. I think Iran would have seen this as part of the plan, but would have preferred to be better ready with Hezbollah's rockets cocked and ready to fire so that it could... Because you see, look, Iran is Iran is on the rise. Their, their their power is growing with time. So why wouldn't they wait to such an opportune um, uh, time until they can use all their proxies together, as seems to be their plan? So I think that the, the Hamas in Gaza was a little impatient, and so this was this gave us a lucky break. This along with the American aircraft carrier. But then, just to return to a point, but to uh, I open and then finish. There may be an alliance now between the Biden administration, which seeks to somehow leverage this conflict so that it can push the Israelis and the Palestinians to the Oslo track, the two-state solution, and 
a military establishment and its offshoots in the political system, all of whom still believe in the two-state solution. But that is so out of touch with the Israeli public that I'm, I'm, I'm risking myself here and telling you it has no chance whatsoever. Anyone who thinks that now Israelis would agree to... Gaza is tiny and Judea and Samaria are huge. And in the middle, at the very heart of Israel, there's, there are nine miles between the, the, the foothills of Samaria and the beach of Tel Aviv. So th th this is very narrow. And, and the idea that the leftist progressive Tel Aviv will agree to be right under the guns of uh, Hamas or its uh, it, it, or, or other similar terror organizations is preposterous. Israelis would just not agree. We had polls now that, they, that about 40%, more than 40% of Israelis say that their opinions move to the right. That's amazing. You're ruling out any possibility of a two-state solution, which seems to be, you know, the the preferred European Western uh, solution, if you like. I think Israel is ruling that out. And the, the novelty in this is that Israel, too, is ruling that out, because clearly the Palestinians have always ruled it out. And when they were speaking of two states, they we have the Saibarikat papers. Saibarikat was the negotiator from the Palestinian Authority, and we captured all the papers from his office, or most of them. And there he explained to his team that they should always say, two states living side by side in peace, and not two states for two peoples, because they don't recognize the Jewish rights for a, a state, and, the, and their idea of two states is two Arab-majority states, in which... Israel would absorb all the Palestinian diaspora. They call this the right of return, which is not a right and not exactly a return, but never mind. But but ne never mind the terms. What they're speaking of is a, a, a huge Palestinian immigration to make Israel, too, a, an Arab-majority state. You don't think the Palestinian Authority in any way would be the basis for some kind of diplomatic solution at some point? The functionaries of the Palestinian Authority expressed their joy over the massacre of October 7, that we have never had any uh, Palestinian leader to actually agree to a real two-state solution. There is no reason. They, they, their, their tactic is different. These are terrorists in suits, and these are terrorists with guns. But the Palestinian Authority is also bent on what they call... Um, from the river to the sea. So for them, the occupation is not the military rule of Judea and Samaria. The occupation is any Jewish present in the land of Israel, presence. What does that mean for the West Bank then, you know, long term? I think more and more Israelis are reaching the conclusion that, uh, that there can't be a, a military force other than the IDF between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That means we will have to dismantle the uh, so-called police force of the Palestinian Authority. Um, Mike Duran and I screened on our show uh, a, a video showing the training of this so-called police force. We are talking about 30,000 
soldiers. And if you look at what they are training for, this is clearly not police work. They are training for a war. Now I ask you, a war with who? They're not planning to invade Jordan. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, absolutely positive about that. And they've learned what Hamas could do with, with, with very little equipment, and they are better equipped. They are trained by the American army, and, and they are 10 minutes from Tel Aviv. So I imagine what happened to Israelis, David, because, because you know, the, the, our sense of the, the, the liberal frame of mind in Tel Aviv was predicated on a very high baseline of personal security. Now, we assume that, that being burned alive was something that happened in the Middle Ages or maybe World War II. Now, women and children were tied together and burnt alive. And, and I'm sorry, to, I don't want to alarm your, your podcast listeners, but we have positive evidence of, of that from forensic uh, analysis. So this, I, I live in a flat in Tel Aviv, and and I and I, and this is this is a very progressive environment, as you know. It's like it's like Budapest in in Hungary, and 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 imagine that now hipsters with their fancy trimmed beards and earrings are applying for gun licenses. That's a real change in your fundamental sense of existence, and I think that we need to start thinking about this conflict in larger terms. First of all, it's and, and I'll be happy to hear your opinion on that. It's it's a it's a, a conflict. It's a, it's we are the front line of a conflict between Western civilization and radical Islam. This is very clear to Israelis, to Europeans, well, to the Dutch it's maybe clear now. It may have been clear to uh, Hungarians before that. Um but but also, if you think in regional terms, we are now in 1956. In 1955, Nasser acquired a, he got a huge arms deal from the Soviet Union. And Israel knew it needed to do something because this has shifted the balance of power. And in 56, Israel went to the Suez War in a conspiracy with Britain and with France, and that was a preemptive war, and it angered the, the two superpowers. And then we had it. So, so we 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 conquered the Sinai Peninsula, and then we we gave it back. And then there was the Six Days War, and then there was the War of Attrition, and then there was the Yom Kippur War, and finally in 1979 there was peace with Egypt. So in 1979, Israel managed to break the ring of encirclement in which. Nasser, Gamal Abdul Nasser, the radical uh, um, Egyptian leader, was the linchpin. And so this is a multi-war struggle to free Israel from being surrounded by an alliance designed to destroy it. And once, I'd say, Kissinger managed to pull out Egypt from that ring and flip it to the western side, the ring began to dissolve, and it had seen its last breath with the Abraham Accords. The Arab boycott has finished. Now we have a new noose being tied around our necks um, by Iran, 
So now Iran is playing the role of Egypt in 56. And we have a long multi-war struggle in order to break the new encirclement ring in which Iran placed its proxies, Hezbollah on the north, their, their militias in Syria, in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, and, uh, and, and, Hezbollah, and Hamas uh, on our south. So we are in for a, for, for a very long struggle in which this war is only one act. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there. And of, of course, um, the role Russia plays in this as well is not uninteresting, given it takes pressure off the Ukraine situation for them. So I, know, I think that, that and you know, obviously we're in a, a very new, um, uh, well, uh, we're in a world of no order at the moment, I think. And the, and, and the problem of the West and its, you know, commitment to so-called um, international law is, is part of the problem here. Um, plus the, you know, I mean, one of the, 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 well, the depressing features of the war is the amount of support that Palestine gets in the West and particularly amongst universities and uh, liberal elites in places like London and you know Harvard, um, and uh, in a sense you're quite right. You know, obviously um, Israel is now the front line of what passes for Western civilization, but Western civilization itself seems to have lost the support of the elites that should be upholding it, um, which makes it even more worrying. I think it's it's, it's more worrying. Surely, far more worrying, say, than the Cold War in nineteen fifty-six. Absolutely, um, it's it's. Uh, um, I I think that that if you if you look at how this development developed from the sixties on, then what you see is what I think I I referred to in our previous conversation is an autoimmune disease. The, the West assumed it's completely triumphant and so can immerse itself in, 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 in rituals of moral purifications and, 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 and guilt feelings. And it hadn't paid attention to the fact that it's geopolitically, its power is eroding vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. And internally, it allowed uh, a, a huge numbers of immigrants who, who who openly say that they don't share the values of the West and that the destruction of the West is their goal. And the West has suffered from a combination of overconfidence in its material strength along with a complete crisis of confidence in its moral justifications. And that combination has has created a situation wherein it can it can it just uh, uh, binge on on its own guilt trips, not noticing that the, the that there are holes at the bottom of their ship of our ship. Well, I think yeah, I think the the holes at the bottom of the ship are pretty profound at the moment, and um, these sort of um, 
demonstrations on campuses and the attacks on you know synagogues and anybody who displays a sort of uh, Israeli flag is um I, I mean it, it, it it's so shocking um that you you can hardly grasp how quickly um cities like London have have fallen into a kind of um uh well they, they've become what some people described London in the you know the early 2000s a kind of Londonistan really which which um you know and you've got a capital controlled by a mayor whose sympathies are with you know the palestinians you've got an scottish national party whose leader is you know partly palestinian or his wife is um you you've got this sort of um gradual takeover of the labor party in particular by um you know um elements that are um uh, you know favorable to the muslim brotherhood and yet there seems to be no kind of capacity for any kind of conservative um, uh, opposition or, you know, conservative government, in fact, in the UK to do anything about it. it, it it's um, it's kind of as if they're they're sort of um, mesmerized um, and, and, and incapable of of taking firm action. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but the. Maybe the light at the end of the tunnel is that Jews, in this sense, the canary in the in the coal mine, um, are at least partly beginning to wake up, because these people who who were Jewish progressives who went to all these elite universities who uh, supported Peace Now and Jewish Voices for Peace and 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 thought they would and BLM and all the other progressive causes suddenly send their children to the university to which they have donated huge sums of money to have their children uh, suddenly feel unsafe. And suddenly suddenly they realize that they're funding anti-Semitism. So, so suddenly all the, all the support for, you know, the Shosh Foundations and the New Israel Fund and all these, these uh, international human rights organizations which are then exposed to be fronts for 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 terror organization you know the the ism uh, the international solidarity movement is a, it's a very it's an established so-called so-called uh, human rights organization fighting to free palestine and then it turns out there was a, there was an investigative a, a beautiful work of investigative journalism where an israeli ngo a patriotic one sent a young Scandinavian woman as a volunteer into this organization, and she found out that they are getting their money from Hamas. So you have a, a human rights organization getting its money from Hamas. I might have mentioned this. In a, well, I think that's the other thing. You know, we we had a conference here um, last week talking about the war with um, you know a couple of um, you know commentators. One from the Washington Institute called. Um, uh, Mark Levitt. I don't know if you come across him. He's yeah. So he was saying that what's quite interesting, I, which I hadn't really realised, is that Hamas is is not actually you know bothered about the governance of Palestine. Its whole agenda is to um, destroy Israel, and it actually sees um, NGOs, the UN, as 
providing the basic um you know kind of infrastructure for the population that they do that that's not their business and they i suppose sort of take a tax off um un and ngos to support their own military efforts yeah for instance take this as an example they get they get more per capita international assistance than anyone on the face of the earth and they don't use any of it to build bomb shelters for their population they use it to bring to to build tunnels for their fighters and gaza gaza could have been everybody in israel predicted that since the palestinians the palestinian people actually want peace then once israel retreats from gaza it will become the singapore of the middle east and the gazans do not invest in gaza because they are taught in schools that the gaza is just a temporary refugee camp their real home is the state where israel is and is and the jews would be expelled they say back to europe because their whole frame of mind is taken from algeria the algeria uh, Lib- the, the algerian battle for liberation so jews will go back to europe never mind that half of them came from our countries but in their frame of mind it's like go back to france jews will go back to europe and we will decolonize uh, israel and and that's the view being uh, ex expounded on uh, British and American campuses, I think, as well. Yeah, this is, the, the, the I think, the most influential intellectual in the, the humanities and social sciences in in the last quarter of the, the 20th century is not, as I used to think, Michel Foucault, but actually Edward Said. And, and, and Edward Said is a is a simplistic version of uh, Foucault. I don't. I don't think he understood Foucault, but he did understand this frame of mind of of Western guilt and the division of humanity into oppressors and oppressed. And this division is what explains why the atrocity of Hamas don't register. Because if you have a badge of being a victim, then you get a moral waiver to do anything you want. And these atrocities, David, people are speaking here of the, this is the actual thing that they are saying here, worse than the Nazis, worse than the Nazis. For, 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 the, for Jewish memory to say, for the, Jews, the Jewish collective memory to register something as worse than the Nazis is, 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 is off the charts. And yet you go on to social media platform and people are saying uh, that the, the, the Israel is a colonial state. The Palestinians are uh, the oppressed, and killing babies is just a Zionist lie. Yeah, I, I think that sort of um, you know uh, that version of, of what's happened in terms of you know so-called post-colonial discourse theory that took off from Said in the eighties, um, and I rem- remember you know. Being in London in in the nineties, starting to read you know, that, that rather facile work, Orientalism, and couldn't believe how influential it became. It was along with people like Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak who said the subaltern has no voice, and yet yeah. can the subaltern speak? I think was there a famous essay? Yeah, it's had almost um, an unstoppable uh, vocal uh, expression ever since. How stupid can academics get? You know, they're speaking all the time. Why don't you just listen? Because what happened with Edward Said 
is that it turned the study of the Middle East from observing the Middle East into observing the professors who are supposed to deal with the Middle East. They stopped looking at Arabs and they start looking at their own text. And so does Professor Spivak. Yeah, and and the the other thing, you know, the clear thing in in you know Said was his own sort of um, self mystification as a Palestinian, you know, when when his father was from Egypt, I think. Um, yeah, and he and was worked for the U.S. Was an, Army. An English lit professor, <laughs> an American. Yeah, yeah. So now, I, I mean, the whole sort of um, you know the the whole. Um, uh, myth of um what was happening um you know in the middle east through orientalism the idea that the west was imposing this sort of emasculation of oriental culture um and, and that this was a a western uh you know kind of like all scholarship was an extension of colonialism when you know you only had to read a few texts to realize that um some of these Western commentators, these European commentators at SOAS, who are now, you know, um, whose books are probably, you know, removed from the library, were, were really serious Arab scholars, you know, not trying to um, diminish Arab culture, but trying to, you know, explain how it was that Islam, you know, operated in, in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman world. And yet, because they dealt with Islam as as a real force in in um, uh, Arab culture, Said didn't want that because he wanted to say that it's all about the oppression of the native and nothing to do with it. You know, the thing about Said and Spivak is that they don't see the other as having any um, agency. And this suits their ability to speak for them, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But but the end result is that they don't want to listen. You know, I was in New York. I was I, I was doing my graduate studies, and, and at when when nine eleven came, and MESA, which is the National Organization for Middle Eastern Studies, uh, issued a a statement saying, it, "Don't go to government programs." for uh, the study of the Arabic language, because this is just part of oppression and colonialism. So in the aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration opened programs for the study of Arab language, because people are studying themselves, not the Arabs, and, and there was, there was they, they, needed, they needed it for intelligence. But imagine how we got to a situation where the Middle Eastern Studies Association forbids you to study the Arab language. It's just... It's just a perfect metaphor of academic autism. Yes, I, I think um, you know the, the the manner in which academe has been corrupted. Um, well, since uh, it started deconstructing itself, has 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 left us with this um, well legacy that that we're now unable to um, intellectually respond to what Hamas are. Exactly. Yep. Anyway, on on that note, Gaddy, I, I think we'll conclude today and um, revisit again in the new year. It was a pleasure, David. Thank you so much for having me.